0: Partially Examine Life depends on your support. To find out how to do that in ways that are cheap or even free, go to partialexaminelifecom slash support. One way to support us for free is to think of us when you're shopping on Amazon.com. You can go to partialexaminelife.com and click on the button at the top right of our right sidebar. That gives us a percentage of what you spend without any cost to you.
1: Listen to the Partially Examined Life, episode 244, part two. We've been talking about Camus' novel, The Plague. We've been structuring this largely by going character by character that we gave the point of view of Teru, the visitor to the city who sort of pursues some sort of sainthood, maybe. And then Panelu, the Jesuit priest, uh, so we can see Camus' view on Christianity. And then ended with Raymond Rambert, the journalist who's visiting and just wants to get out and get back to his Wife. So maybe we should move to Grand. What's his first name? I don't know. Do we ever get his first name? Monsieur Grand. Yeah. Grand. He's an older gentleman. Somebody else want to give more of his story? Where do we first meet him? Well, it's when he's just saved
0: Qatar from committing suicide.
2: They live in the same building together, right?
0: So Grand is a municipal office clerk, so he'll end up doing a lot of stuff with the death counts and the statistics too, stuff that actually, you know, we've, with the coronavirus, become pretty familiar with. In fact, there are lots of things in this novel that are very resonant, but we'll get to that later. Um, <laughs> so, Grant, it turns out, is calling not because of his typical health problem, which is a constriction of the aorta that Rio sees him for regularly, but because Cotard, his neighbor, has tried to kill himself. So that's the first time we see Grant. And then, as the novel goes on, this is kind of the way things go in general because of the plague Ryu gets close to people that he actually had more of an acquaintanceship with or more of a doctor patient relationship with so it's over the course of the novel that he'll learn ron's story which is that he was in love he had a wife he was left by that wife you guys can fill in more details and i'm forgetting it at some point but
1: i think it was because of his crappy job that he couldn't he took this Lower level clerk position with the promise of rise, but then like the person who made that promise left and he just never, he talks about how he just can't find his words. He can't stick up for himself. And so this grind, you know, for this low wage steadily drove the love out of his marriage that he just wasn't giving. He was not making her feel loved enough. And so she left, but he seems usually okay about that. <laughs> this is many years later, or at least, you know, his concern about that seems to be that. She doesn't feel guilty for leaving him at this point, you know, so that she probably looks back at the whole thing with regret. But the, most of what we get of their interaction with Grandy is the thing that Seth was complaining about, which is that he wiles away his time after he goes home very intently working on this novel, though we find that it's really like the same few
2: paragraphs. The same first line, isn't it? It's like one line. He can't get past the first line. That's all he
1: talks to them about, but when they actually get the document in their hands at the end and burn it when he thinks he's going to die, it ends up being 50 pages. It's not all just the first line. It's not all work and no play make Jack a
0: dull boy. It's not that kind of. It is all just the first line.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I thought it was just crossed out over and over again, rewritten over and over again, the same first line. That's what I thought. (laughs) Let's go to that point,
0: because I think we, we should figure out, since Seth posed this challenge early on, we'll figure out what this means. But
1: Let me just read the quote, though, from page two to thirty-seven When they actually get the manuscript in hand, he's talked to them about it, and he's read them this first line and how he's working on it. Glancing through them, Ryu saw that the bulk of the writing consisted of the same sentence written again and again with small variants, simplifications, or elaborations. I was interpreting the bulk as not quite as psychotic as you guys were.
0: It's around the middle of the novel that we first, or a little before the middle of the novel, that we learn what this line is because he talks to them about it. He's confided about his wife, and then he says, well, well, luckily I've been working on this project. You know, I have that now. And the line is, one fine morning in the month of May, an elegant young horsewoman might have been seen riding a handsome sorrel mare along the flowery avenues of the Bois de Boulogne." <laughs> He's very worried about getting all the words right. So he wants, you know, he's changing a word here and there, and apparently he spent I don't know if it's years, God knows how much time he spent on this first sentence and just tweaking words here and there. What does this say about him and what is what's the point of this being in the novel? I guess that's our task here now. Is this
1: his Sisyphusian rock? He likes it. It's not like pushing the rock. He likes
3: doing it. Kemu makes a point of The narrator, sorry, makes a point of saying how he struggles with language, he struggles with words, he always struggles to find the right thing to say. And it's unclear to me, I don't recall if it's indicative of an educational or a lack of intelligence or something like that, but he's always pausing to try to find the right way to say something or to find the right way to articulate or even struggles to find the words. And the novel is is just a magnified representation of that. By the way, I'm going to say very early on in the first time that he reveals the sentence, I made the call that he should drop the adjectives. So <laughs> I, I, I was able to I picked that part out of the plot anyway. Just like I also predicted. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! <laughs> he gets rid of the adjectives. The plague ebbs. <laughs> his obsession with language is one thing that I'm sure Wes, you know, has paid a lot more attention to than I did. But his relationship to the novel is really if we're going to read it through the existentialist lunges, he's fixated on playing some kind of a game with language in the sense that he's trying to find this perfect, he's struggling over what, as opposed to just the doing of the writing. doing the Write the book, try to get it published, and take action. And instead, it's almost a self-indulgent obsession You know, initially he, he won't share it with anybody. And then when he does, he's talking about, well, Ryu has to actually correct him, right? That the description he uses of the horse is actually a color. And that, and after he says, should I say that the horse is black as well? He didn't even understand the words he was using. It represents a certain kind of, it's a distraction from trying to create meaning in life. And in fact, Grand's great movement and the reason why he's partially at least in some of the extra commentaries i read the hero you know the hero of the book is that he breaks free of this self-isolation and obsession to actually act in the world with other human beings and to struggle against the virus the bacillus it's it's not a virus it's alive sorry <laughs> i'm preoccupied with what's going on around us <laughs>
0: It seems like this started after he lost his wife, after she left him, right? So this is his way of responding to that loss. Instead of grieving it properly, he's developed this obsession. And then there's this fantasy that, you know, once it's published, someone's going to, tip their uh, say, hats off, gentlemen, or something like that. You know, he wants an outlet for his love, he wants an outlet for his creativity, but he's stuck. And, and that's not something that's uncommon. It's not as dramatic, but it's not uncommon for people to be stuck in this particular way, and especially in this particular type of repetition. And Seth, your use of the word viral is kind of spot on because it's this type of death-like, mindless repetition that enters into life. And it's one of the factors that creates the kind of shallow, ordinary living that the narrator describes at the beginning of the novel in which one moment just sort of infects the next. What's shallow about life is just sort of the the mindless repetition of it and the ways in which that prevents people from truly loving or from truly being engaged, let's say, with other people, taking other people for granted and so on. So I think even though this dramatizes that predicament, this is actually a predicament that's common to humanity and is part of the Metaphorical plague that afflicts us even before this, and afflicts the townspeople of Iran even before the literal plague arrives. And it involves the same thing; it involves replication and infection. It's just the type of replication and infection that bleeds life of its vitality. That's a good point,
3: Wes. And actually, in saying that, you you made me think. You know, one of the major themes of the novel is the shift from Camus says at some point or the narrator, that was put into an immediate state of exile because of their solitary confinement. They were essentially exiled from the community and from the ones they loved and what have you. And the evolution of their response from this kind of selfish, woe is me or trying to exploit it and this notion of exile is moved towards a community response where they recognize that they're all in it together and everybody is level before death and that Classes don't matter and so forth. And what you just said makes me think that the opening move for Grand is in essence a selfless one that he's not calling the doctor with his aortic thing or, you know, calling him to have a conversation about this secret pastime that he does in the evenings, but it's actually concern for another. There's essentially already that spark or that hint in him that he has the capability for. Other directedness and selflessness that he'll ultimately demonstrate. But it's funny, it wasn't until you just spoke that I actually thought about that as a virtue in the initial phases of the novel.
1: I didn't know before reading this that, well, he's described as having all the attributes of insignificance, but that's right after they say Gran has no upper teeth. So I did not know that having no upper front teeth means
3: you are of no significance. That doesn't sound insignificant.
0: It sounds scary to me. Well, as in being lower class, probably.
2: Yeah, a sign of being poor. Though he himself, is he has a job and he's not indigent or anything like that.
1: Well, yeah, we should then, so the guy who was helping, Qatar, is a very interesting, everybody else seems like you could describe him as a hero, right? But Qatar is too messed up for that.
2: He's the only one that seems to be thriving and, in fact, prefer the plague is upset about the plague going away Mm -hmm. say why that is it wasn't completely clear to me exactly why it was except for the part where he's basically profiting off of it
0: that's exactly the reason (laughs) well no it's it's he's done something wrong right yeah he's committed a crime or at least he thinks he has and he thinks he's wanted for that crime
2: So that part of it was that suspicion was clear enough with him where he was at the end. He's constantly worried about the way in which things are going to get back to normal. And when the machinery of administration, government, start coming back around, he's really worried about that. Did I just miss it or was it just, is it left unstated what his crime was, what he did wrong?
0: It's left unstated. I mean, the closest we get to an indication of that is when he runs out of the tobacconist shop. This tobacconist woman, who's a nightmare apparently, and a gossip, says something about an Algerian, someone who's been murdered on the beach. And Qatar's like, oh, I'm out of (laughs) here. And it's unclear whether he's just uncomfortable with the whole idea of people talking about crime and culpability, or if he's responsible for that murder, because later on he's going to say, it's not a murder, it's something, but it's not a murder. I've done something wrong, people are after me. You get the impression that it could just be entirely in his imagination, especially since he goes nuts at the end of the novel. It could just be purely his paranoia.
3: That put me in mind of Harry Lime from The Third Man, if you guys know.
2: I don't
0: explain that for, it's been so long.
3: Oh, uh, it's the Orson Welles movie. uh, Basically, in post World War II Vienna, when it's all cordoned off, this American is looking for this guy he knows named Harry Lime, and Harry Lime is an elusive character. He's in the black market, and he buys and sells medications. That by doing so, he's depriving people who who need that medicine. He's selling it at a profit when it's supposed to be delivered. You know, to and so kids are getting you know, typhoid and stuff like that. And I thought of Qatard as that kind of a character where maybe he didn't directly murder somebody, but he's, we know he's a smuggler, that comes out in, later on in the book. And my reading of it was the implication is that somehow his smuggling-related activities, particularly right since the wars just ended. And I think in one of the commentaries I read, there's a suggestion that he was almost a collaborator doing business with the Nazis. and that So it's possible that that's the implication.
2: My read of it was that, because it's also never stated exactly why he tries to commit suicide, but that whatever it was that he was involved with, it was central to why he tried to commit suicide earlier. He's trying to avoid something. Yeah, and he says that actually that's in a conversation
1: eventually yeah he doesn't for a long time does not admit that and he does you know he's friends with all the characters and he hangs around with them and he invites them out he gets much apparently he's very antisocial at the beginning of the story but as this play comes and he his whole personality changes and he's a he's for some reason someone taru is very interested in does that mean he's a saint i don't i don't think so but taru says the the only thing that he holds Kotard guilty of is collaborating with the plague, essentially, that he wants the plague to continue, that he's the only one that, since his life in normal circumstances did not seem worth living, at least, and and then that catches up with him at the very end, that he basically, he's taken away, right? But he tries to kind of kill himself by cop. That's how I was interpreting it. He got pissed off by something, people talking on the street, and he, you know, holds himself up and is he shoots a dog right in front of us, so there's no way we can like that character anymore.
0: <laughs> yeah, well we get the sense because there's a there's an earlier scene in which detectives are looking for him, right? And he flees. Did they identify them as detectives? That's what I wasn't sure. Government. They're government. I think all of this is purposefully ambiguous so that we can wonder whether it's all on his head or not. His overdue library books. Yeah, or or there's <laughs> you know, more of his suicide inquiry or something like that. So But yeah, he's created this situation in the end where he's, whether it's because people have come looking for him to arrest him or whether it's just because that was in his imagination and he started all of this, yeah, we get a final shootout at the end and then he's dragged off. Do we think that's a coincidence
1: that that's after Taru is dead? that maybe Taru, who is shown as at least taking a lot of interest in him, you know, and writing a lot about him in uh, Kotar, in his journal, that once Tarou is dead at the beginning of the final book, then that's the mooring that maybe that was part of. Every, everybody else says that he's kind of turned a cold shoulder to them.
2: I didn't take it as being somehow... That Qatar went off the end because of Tarou's death as a character, but that it was, Tarou dies and is sort of the last great casualty of the plague. And the timing is basically, the plague has ended and that's why Qatar goes crazy. And so it's just a kind of coincidence of timing that's happening.
1: Yeah, I wasn't sure in terms of, like, could he have prevented that if Taru was still around? If Tarou is representing some kind of saintly figure that, with his charisma, was holding everybody together, he's the one that got the sanitary squads together. It was, even though it was under Ryu's direction, Ryu is kind of a busy, straight-laced doctor and could not rally the troops in that way.
2: I mean, I know that all five of them know each other. I got the sense that Teru and Ryu were the ones who were most interacting with one another and then they have that rooftop scene where Tarou says, can we talk together as friends? And has his big speech. And that Grand and Katard are neighbors and that they are sort of the two that hang out together. And Rombert is sort of around and, and they know each other. But I didn't get the sense that I didn't see Rieu be like close with Katard at all. They went to the opera
0: together. Oh, maybe I'm just wrong about that. I I mean, we get, a lot of the account of we get a, of Katar is actually by Taru. It's in his narrative.
1: But I think you're right that Gran is sort of the, his immediate connection.
0: Yeah, and I, I think you're right. I wouldn't describe them as close. You know, I think you're right in that sense. I don't think Katar is really close to anyone. He's not capable of that.
1: So other than the obvious irony of his being cheerful, Qatar's being cheerful during the plague, like what philosophically are we supposed to get out of this character? Like he doesn't seem to represent one of the logical ways of dealing with things. It's just more yeah, some people actually would thrive in this because they're regular, you know, it seems like there's nothing more to read into it than that. But what what did you guys think?
0: Well, he might be the subman, right? He might be to Beauvoir's something like the subman, but he I think he's the one the only one who doesn't take part in the sanitary squads, I think, or in some other effort related to combating the plague. And he's preoccupied with himself and with what could be paranoid, delusional fantasies. And then in selfish, what's it called, smuggling? <laughs> he's utterly self-interested. And I think that is depicted as being a consequence of his fear of his persecutory anxiety, the idea that other people are out to get him and that he needs to just take care of himself.
2: One way to ask the question is, to what extent are the characters representative of large swaths of people? Is Katard, that sort of self-absorbed character supposed to be, by implication, the way lots of people are? Or uh, Taru, the guy who comes along and, takes charge of the sanitary squads under Rhea's guidance, is that the way most people are? Or is that not the right way to think about the division of the personalities? I think the characters are actually well-developed
0: and subtle, and so they're not merely just representatives of parts of a psyche or as representatives of general types or anything like that. On the other hand, I do think that Katard I see, is someone who's, who's paranoid, essentially, and I think it's a very recognizable trait in other people. I mean, I, I don't know. Have you guys not met Katards in your life? Oh, sure. Yeah. Just as a, as a matter of character, as a matter of what's going on with him psychically, I think you could say, yeah, this is very common, although the novel itself is quite optimistic about human beings, and there's all that talk, right, against heroism, and in favor of the idea that it's the whole two plus two equals four idea. It's not the only time I was reminded of 1984 in this, actually. There's nothing like enormously, and this is Ryu's reflection on Grand, but the idea that you, you could have a hero who's just sort of an ordinary person with problems and that heroism isn't even really the point, that there's nothing especially praiseworthy about doing what's right. It's more about a matter of knowing what's right, and it's in the same way that you would know that two plus two equals four. That quote is on 120 on
1: mine. Ria is saying this, "Uh, we do not congratulate a schoolmaster on teaching that two and two make four, though we may perhaps congratulate him on having chosen his laudable vocation. Let us say then it was praiseworthy that Taru and so many others should have elected to prove that two and two make four rather than the contrary. But let us add that this goodwill of theirs is one that is shared by the schoolmaster and by all who have the same feelings as the schoolmaster, and be it said to the credit of mankind, they are more numerous than one would think. Such, anyhow, is the narrator's conviction. Needless to say he can see quite clearly a point that could be made against him, which is that these men were risking their lives. But again and again, there comes a time in history when the man who dares to say that two and two make four is punished with death.
0: I brought that up just because I think despite the fact that there are plenty of Katarits in the world, I don't think the novel is, you know, as that passage reveals, the novel is more optimistic about human beings and their ethical capacities.
1: So a minor character that we we brought up is this Othon, the magistrate, just that the obvious kind of narrative thing near the beginning is that the town denies that this is really plague, or is slow to accept that things have to actually change. There's such a habitual nature that towns have, that human nature has, that there's Ria and there's two other doctors that are involved, they have to kind of go through a lot of red tape to get this magistrate to actually do anything, or the magistrate claims he doesn't have power. So he started, you know, starts off as kind of a, I don't know, irresponsible, just generic functionary. And then by the end, after his son has died and he's been quarantined himself in this isolation camp, running the camp while he's in there, and then when his kind of time's quarantine has come up, and he voluntarily goes back into it. So, you know, like Rambert and these other characters are that are taking on the plague most directly, this guy goes back into the worst place, like worse than the characters that we deal with spend much time in at all. I think it's just Taru goes on a tour of one of them at some point. So we get a little glimpse of how horrible it is. In there. You know, it sounds like a concentration camp, the way they talk about it.
2: I think that uh, the way in which the magistrate as a sort of public functionary is one of the recurring but sort of minor themes in the whole book is this kind of grind against official organization and so the times where government or journalism you know newspapers would fall on the same thing they're all part of a kind of uh mess of half truths about the world and in some ways it's part of the things that you can't change like the plague and you have to figure out how to to live with it and are constantly struggling against it and sometimes suffering from it and it has a magistrate and the way in which the outside world is dealing with the plague and falls into that category and then the times when that's overcome are on cases of individuals who or small groups of people who take it upon themselves to do the work that the organization itself can't. And I mean, to me, I, I just read it as a kind of constant grind on Camus' part against large organization, that it's just will always fail or be sort of slow and part of the problem.
1: I was thinking a lot about the efficiency of fascism through some of this, you know, as it gets going. At some point, he talks about the inertia of these government agencies continuing to do what they've been designed to do, even though it doesn't make any sense for them to do that. Like as you say, you know, it's a, it's very deadening red tape kind of thing. Um, but by the time we get really into the book, and they're talking about the way that the mass graves and sort of one of the picturesque parts, you know, when Rio is is considering plague at the beginning, he has these images from uh, like Herodotus or you know these these Lucretius or Lucretius, yeah, these accounts from the ancient world of all these horrible things, but by 162, year uh no, the real plague had nothing in common with the grandiose imaginings that had haunted Rhea's mind at its outbreak. It was, uh, about all, a shrewd, unflagging adversary, a skilled organizer doing his work thoroughly and well. And just the way he's describing how they have to bury the people and put quicklime, a layer of quicklime over them, and then pour more people in and then the pits are all full so they have to rig up the trolley cars to be running with no drivers to the crematorium outside of town and I was really getting strong vibes of the efficient killing machine of the Nazis here.
3: No comment. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah,
1: I guess the one other character thing that I thought maybe was worth mentioning was in terms of another way of reacting to life is the Spanish asthma patient. It's like the first patient that Rio sees the whole thing, and I don't think they give his name. They might have at some point. I didn't, I didn't seem to catch it. But he decided at the age of 50 that he'd done enough work for a lifetime. He took to his bed and never left it again.
0: And counts peas in order to, instead of using a clock, counts peas to keep track of time. <laughs> So it takes peas and puts them into pots and fills them up. And so when a certain number of pots are full, he knows that it's time to eat lunch or something. It's truly ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of admiring the character up until that detail. because <laughs> His excuse, for,
1: it was, the first half of life of a man's life is an upgrade. The second goes downhill. On the descending days, he has no claim. They may be snatched from him at any moment. Thus, he can do nothing with them. And the best thing precisely is to do nothing with them. His goal is to die at a very advanced age. So he's not a nihilist. He wants what Benjamin called bare life. He has a allowance that he can live on, and he just wants to be in bed. And that sounds kind of liberating, but then if what he's doing with his time is counting peas the whole time, like, no, we got the uh, Sisyphusian sort of self-distraction back.
0: Well, like Katar, he's kind of delighted by the whole plague, so... Very early on, so he kind of has like a soothsayer type role in the novel, it seems to me. Kind of like a prophetic madman. And early on when the rats are dying, I think it's the first scene actually that we see him in, sitting on his bed with his peas, it says, it's hunger, exclamation point. And talking about what's bringing the rats out or what's killing the rats. And so, you know, thematically, what hunger has to do with plague in the general figurative sense. And then later on, he'll say, you know, they're coming out, they're coming out. And he says that smiling with glee and similar things, you know, talking about the weather, it cooks you, you know, just like the fever cooks you. So every stage of the novel or, you know, he's beaming with delight, saying that the plague is cholera. It's, it's a really interesting relationship to what's happening. I don't know exactly what to make of it, but he just throughout the whole, through the novel, he makes these regular visits to the, the apartment of the asthmatic.
1: So I guess we're circling back around then to what is Ryu's, the, the actual narrator's philosophy here. It's a little harder for me to tell even though he, just because he's present in more discussions, I think we should also, there's probably more Taru still to talk about since he's an equally complicated character and a sub-narrator since Ryu is recording giving the contents or summarizing Tarou's journals through some of this.
0: We've gotten in some of this just in, by talking about the contrast between his position and that of panelu and Taru already but i think there's a lot more to say or to wrap up at least
3: it might be worth spending a moment just talking about what Rude does or what how how he represents during all of this so he he's a doctor right he's making house calls and he's one of numerous physicians in the town it's not as though he's the medical examiner he's not affiliated with the government he's not a you know a pandemic expert or a virologist right he's just a guy who happens to be a doctor who's doing his job. And as this thing develops, he simply acts with a kind of, I want to say moral force, but what I want to do is say something else about the kind of practicality and the, with determination and with practicality for the purposes of alleviating suffering and reducing deaths, which gives him a kind of moral weight with others. And he has a standing, not by virtue of his title, but by virtue of his actions in the community where the magistrates don't have the courage to say the term plague, right? Because we know what, well, we've just lived through it in almost every country in the the planet, right? That the governmental officials are afraid to say what needs to be said from a health perspective because they're afraid of the, as we've already established, economic consequences for this particular place, but also, you know, they don't want to restrict individual liberties, they don't want to deal with the populace, the backlash, or having to find the ways to implement the measures that are actually necessary. And yet, both the governmental entities and and individuals, but also the other doctors recognize that he's to be respected and his point of view is to be respected. He's not shouted down, he's not marginalized. And he's not even strident in the way there's the other doctor who says, hey, it's a plague, why aren't we calling it plague? Right? The older doctor right, who has nothing to lose. He doesn't go that far, but what he says is, who cares what it is? We need to act to prevent the loss of life. And so that stance and the actions he takes to try to actually prevent the loss of life give him a kind of standing and credibility in the novel, but also amongst the other characters. Obviously, he's intended to be, in some sense, a measure of what an appropriate response is to the epidemic, to war, to death, right? Is to just, he says, it's, what does he say? It's common decency, mm-hmm. which in my case means doing my job.
1: Yeah, that's the two plus two equals four things. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's worth revisiting here. We talked a little bit about it, but a discussion that he has with Taru. So this is page 106. In mind and probably add 20 for years. They're discussing uh sermon. And this is where we get some of the philosophical discussion about what all of this stuff means. And one of these, it's, it kind of sounds like it's going to be, in the beginning of the novel, you sort of get the sense that there's a moralistic element to this in which the plague is going to wake people up, right? They're normally oblivious, but it's something that Ryu seems to object. So Taru says, however, you think, like Penelu, that the plague has its good side. It opens men's eyes and forces them to take thought. So Ryu responds, so does every ill that flesh is heir to. What's true of all the evils in the world is true of plague as well. It helps men to rise above themselves. At the same time, when you see the misery it brings, you'd need to be a madman or a coward or stone blind to give in tamely to the plague. So, one of the things we see throughout the novel is, is again, and I mentioned this before, but this rejection of the moralization of suffering, of, you know, saying that suffering, you know, whether it's religious explanation or whether it's something else, whether, you know, even, even one as sort of innocuous as Tarus, the idea that it opens our eyes and forces us to take thought. I think he's onto something much more fundamental than that. There's a more basic principle, which is that we, must work to address suffering. So instead of, and the way he puts it again in this conversation is, you know, he works against creation as he finds it. He's willing to fight nature and not simply submit to it. The other way he puts it is to try to relieve human suffering before trying to point out its excellence. In other words, it's not about ethical aspirations. Relieving people of pain is more important than making them good or excellent or virtuous.
2: He says, you know, within about in the middle of this conversation, Taru is basically asking him, what is giving you your the reasons that you're doing anything? I mean, earlier on, he asked him if he believes in God. And he says, no, it's, I don't even know really what that means. And Taru starts talking to him about his profession as a doctor and fighting creation, against creation as he found it. This is what Wes just read. And the doctor agrees more or less he says, Yes, you're thinking it calls for pride to feel that way, but I assure you, I've no more than the pride that's needed to keep me going. I have no idea what's awaiting me or what will happen when it all ends. For the moment, I know this. There are sick people and they need curing. Later on, perhaps, they'll think things over and so shall I. But what's wanted now is to make them well. I defend them as best I can. That's all. And Taru asks him, Against whom? And he says, I haven't a notion, Taru. I assure you, I haven't a notion. When I entered this profession, I did it abstractedly, so to speak, because I had a desire for it, because it meant a career like another, one that young men often aspire to, perhaps to, because it was particularly difficult for a workman's son like myself. Then I had to see people die. Do you know that there are some who refuse to die? Have you ever heard a woman scream never with her last gasp? Well, I have. And then I saw that I could never get hardened to it. I was young then, and I was outraged by the whole scheme of things, or so I thought. Subsequently, I grew more modest, only I've never managed to get used to seeing people die. That's all I know. Yet after all, after all, Teru prompted, after all, is something that a man of your sort can understand most likely. But since the order of the world is shaped by death, might not it be better for God if we refuse to believe in him and struggle with all our might against death without raising our eyes toward heaven where he sits in silence? And Taru says, but our victories need will never be lasting, that's all. Yes, I know that, but it's no reason for giving up the struggle. No reason, I agree. Only now I can picture that this plague might mean for you. Yes, a never-ending defeat. And Taru asks him, who taught you this, doctor? Ryu replies, suffering.
1: Yeah, so that seems to be Ryu, Ryu's growth throughout this is, he reaches this pretty <laughs> early, actually. I think it's reflected in this talk of abstraction. As he gets to, just like Panalu, we were saying, as Ryu gets to know suffering, then, well, see what do you make of this abstraction? This can't, comes up initially in his conversation with Rambert, right? Rambert, when he's initially wants to get out, he's like, come on, Ryu, give me a certificate that says, I don't belong here. I don't have the plague right now. Let me go. And he's like, I don't, I don't know if you have the plague. Even if you don't have the plague right now, if I give you a certificate, then they, <laughs> you might get it on the way to leaving, you know? And besides which, they don't care about certificates. They're not going to let you out. And Soran Bar says, you're using the language of reason, not the heart. You live in a world of abstractions. And this makes Ryu think quite a bit. This is around page 80. The journalist was right in refusing to be balked of happiness. But was he right in reproaching him, Ryu, with living in a world of abstractions? Could that term abstraction really apply to the days he spent in the hospital where the plague was battening the town, raising its death toll to 500 victims a week? Yes, an element of abstraction of a divorce from reality entered into such calamities. Still, when abstraction
0: sets to killing you, you've got to get busy with it. <laughs> that goes on the movie poster. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Ryu with a, a machine gun in each hand.
2: <laughs> it's those scenes that make me feel like if there's a mouthpiece for Camus and the whole thing, it's got to be Ryu. And the combination of Pragmatic activity that's outside of abstraction, but directed a kind of rooted directedness.
1: I was reading his take on Taru as being Sartre, not because I'm seeing you know Sartre and existentialism necessarily in there, but just like the thing that he's writing kind of sounds like Sartre's novel Nausea, you know he's delighted that he's found a city or a Iran that's so ugly, and I don't know if you guys have have any read nausea Mm-mm. I did a not-school thing on it with, with some people, and it's just a lot of phenomenological description of just the weird, ugly <laughs> way the world is, but maybe he's not an ugly enough character for, <laughs> to, be, to be Sartre. Just it's more on this abstraction, so even just a page after the part I was reading, Rhea's talking about his job has become more and more just to kind of stand around and give information, just to diagnose, like he can't actually cure this. Like the sanitation squads, those are the guys insofar as Rio is participating in that. They're being proactive. They're going around and like, well, are you making sure your house is clean? Because this is not a matter of, you know, maintain social distancing. This is a matter of keeping flea that they know that you get it from fleas. So like, how can you make sure that you're cleaning all your clothes and you're wearing the masks in areas? Anyway, there's a bunch of things that and they're not really clear on what they're, how they're fighting it. What it comes down to his day and day is like watching people that are sick and then like, Deciding when they're sick enough that he has to just call a hospital for
2: them. In terms of treatment, eventually they get a serum that they're giving to patients to try to reduce the intensity, and they also are inoculating people as well. And with with admittedly mixed success, they're doing it and they feel like it's making a difference, but they clearly also see exceptions. He's also you know le- you know draining people's swellings and, um, or deciding if it's going to make a difference and that kind of thing.
0: So yeah, after he gets accused of you know, abstractness by Rambert, it comes up in a few different places in the text where he's thinking about this whole abstraction thing. So you know, at one point he says, then indeed began abstraction and a tussle with the family who knew they would not see the sick man again. Um, and then later on in another scene, it's, you know, yes, plague-like abstraction was monotonous, and perhaps only one factor changed, and that was Ryu himself. Standing at the foot of the statue of the Republic that evening, he felt it. All he was conscious of was a bleak indifference, steadily gaining on him. As he gazed at the door of the hotel, Rambert had just entered. He kind of associates this concept of abstraction with pitilessness, and that's what Rambert is essentially accusing him of. You know, you're favoring reason, you're not pitying me, you're not having a heart, and this idea that he, you know, since the plague is abstract and pitiless in that sense, that's the appropriate response to it. And I think this says something about his approach as well to the ethical, because you might think that helping out the suffering is just a matter of pity. It's, a, it's motivated by pity for the suffering, and that you develop a, an ethics based on pity, right? Which is something that Nietzsche, for instance, would have rejected and i think that existentialists in general would reject pity is not a sound basis it's not a sound ethical basis so you know what's motivating him exactly to alleviate the suffering of others even if it means a kind of heartlessness even if it means not escaping himself to see his wife or helping rambert escape to see his wife even if it means dragging loved ones away from each other so they could be isolated taken to the hospital where they're going to die all that stuff It's something deeper. It's, you know, you might even say it's akin to deontology or akin to simply a matter of obligation, of fundamental obligation to humanity and its collective fate as something that transcends the moralism of Panelu and any other moralism that's pity based.
2: The only part about that I wonder is about whether Ryu thinks about it. In those grand terms, or if he implicitly is, I guess, because he, in the part that I that I read earlier, he sort of stumbles into his profession and finds that the sort of the, the mechanic of it, of going through and witnessing suffering, but then going about the business of alleviating it as a kind of practical thing. He doesn't seem to have the voice of someone who is engaging in it because this is the human condition or think about it in those kinds of big terms.
1: Well, maybe it's the abstraction has to do with again, the abstracting from individual circumstances. So if it's just, that's just what people do. In other words, that's just what's required of me. That's what's my function. So like that does bring like, you're right. It's not saying the human condition, but like it's actually built into that. It's kind of human teleology unquestioned, you know, habitual, using reason to figure out, oh, this is the thing that one does in this situation. On the one hand, it's associated with reason, but the struggle between each man's happiness and the abstractions of the plague, which constituted the whole life of our town over a long period of time. That's near that same section before we were talking about abstractions, that the plague dehumanizes, it makes it more abstract, and you end up just going through the motions. Which is why you said he, he stumbled in his profession. He actually used the word he abstractedly got into his profession. That's just like a thing that people aspire to. So I did it. So is abstraction the enemy or is abstraction? It seems like it is in general the enemy, but it can be a useful tool, right? If you were always feeling at fever pitch, you would, you would not get anything done. You need to have habits. It's just like habit in general is the enemy of humanity you know, being an existential individual.
0: But goddamn, we need habits. There's a point where Tarou is explaining his position to him about murder and all of us being afflicted with the plague and yeah. essentially giving him the his to the philosophy of pacifism. And Ryu says, yes, or so here's Ryu's response. Yes, he replied, the path of sympathy, which he doesn't embrace. And I think there's meant to be some... Daylight between the positions of Teru and Ryu. And I think it's along the lines that I've just spelled out, which is that when you're confronted with the pitilessness and abstractness or abstraction of a plague, which again, just as a stand in, is a dramatic stand in for what life throws at us in general and necessity and the essence side of the existentialist existence essence dichotomy say for someone like de Beauvoir, right? The response to that is a matter of respect for other human beings as freedoms, as ends in themselves. It sounds, it'll sound very much like something in the tradition of German idealism and Kant, but it gets us away from the sort of sentimentalism of Tarou. So that's what I took to be the point of ria embracing abstraction at that point and pitilessness. Because I think he sees it as the only way that, that someone is going to do what he does, which is to help people regardless of what feelings it creates in him. And Panalu and Taru represent different solutions where there's still some sort of moralization required in order to act. And I think Ryu does transcend that, what I'm calling moralization. It seems
1: actually Rieu as well as Teru, plays with this idea of looking for saints that I just found in that discussion of the Spanish asthma patient of his weird thing with the peas. Rieu asks, is he a saint? Yes. If saintliness is an aggregation of habits and Teru is asked about the man that he sees out the window recurrently spitting on cats. Like, is he a saint? Which why would you think any of these people are saints? Like, unless you're equating a saint with. Just someone who sort of has a pureness of purpose, in other words, like Grand in being so obsessed with his one sentence, is acting saintly. Like saints are insane, that they're fixated on some pure ideal to the exclusion of all else. So you could be a saint of love, you could be a saint of almost anything.
0: Yeah, it's hard to decipher that, right? We're familiar with the virtue of ethics tradition. and Saints are often martyrs.
1: I guess. I mean Ryu says, Taru, you gotta stay alive. Saints if you're gonna become saint, you gotta
0: live. So I'm not sure. Taru is thinking about the possibility of secular sainthood without martyrdom. But what does this mean? Saintliness as an aggregate of habits mean, right? So we're familiar with virtue ethics in which, you know, virtues are just habits but they're particular forms of habits, so not just any habit. Although with Nietzsche, we get a refinement of that in which virtue isn't about human nature as such, but about one's particular character and becoming what one is, becoming that character, living through, you know which would mean engaging in those habits associated with one's character. But again, it seems like it can't just be any character and it can't just be any set of habits. So I don't know what this means.
1: Here's the quote around the Earlier, Taru has been watching this man spit on cats, and then the cats disappear with the plague, and the man is so stymied because he so enjoyed spitting on the cats. And then when finally the, the cats are back at the end of the plague, Teru is disappointed that the man never comes out again. So he's trying to figure out, like, is he dead? If dead, the question was, as in the case of the old asthmatic, had he been a saint? Teru hardly thought so, but he found, in the old man's case, a pointer. Perhaps, he wrote, we can only reach approximations of sainthood. In which case we must make shift with a mild benevolent diabolism, which I'm interpreting is the same as like being the innocent murderer. But I still don't really understand <laughs> Tarus' obsession with sainthood here. I really, in light of reading Zarathustra book, I was it book three of Zarathustra somewhere. You know, the latter part of it, where Zarathustra is encountering all these characters that are like this guy's a giant eye because some people just see and they don't ever hear or smell. Some of these characters, these saints are somebody who's exaggerated in some way. Like these are potentially ways in a pluralistic sort of ethics of the sort that Nietzsche was in favor of, at least, and probably Camus, you know, ways to try to deal with the world. They're maybe not optimal. It would be nice to be a well rounded human being, but extremes are, uh, not terrible. (laughs) They're a way to be. At least you're not just being abstract, right? You're being your individual weird-ass
2: self. Doesn't it just depend upon what kind of extreme you are? <laughs> extreme! Or doesn't depend a lot on what kind of extreme you are. Right. Well, I think
1: if they're even wondering, is, was Cotard a saint? Well, he, he did live his own way. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> Am I misremembering that?
2: I'm sympathetic with this definition of sainthood as being someone who is solely focused on something. Except for the fact that I've never heard it before. <laughs> and I guess I didn't realize that I thought of sainthood as being anything other than somebody who is single-mindedly devout to a particular understanding of God, and particular Christian understanding.
1: But 90% of those words you said,
2: <laughs> you just take the God and Christian understanding part. I'm not disagreeing with you, Mark, but it, it, it to me it moves the word saint into like, any kind of obsess- obsessive behavior, which is, maybe it is.
1: Maybe that's just the problem, you know,
2: with existentialism
1: that we keep coming back, you know, we back to our uh, No Country for Old Men episode of trying to, like, okay, you know, the murderer is an individual, he seems self-actualized, <laughs> like, please don't make us call that person a saint just because they're extreme in some way.
0: <laughs> well, whatever Taru means by this, you know, we know that Ryu rejects it and will say, I feel more fellowship with the defeated than with saints. Heroism and sanctity don't really appeal to me, I imagine. What interests me is being a man. And I think that squares with some of the contrast that I was trying to draw before between their ethical positions. But yet they can be friends, which is maybe a different way of approaching
1: that same solidarity. Of course, doesn't require friendship. You're just working together. Pan Liu works with them on the squads, even though he has a totally different reason for doing so. But I think maybe more so just to kind of circle back to, you know, we're talking about romantic love. Well, maybe what's good about romantic love is as a species of, you know, particularly vigorous friendship. But that the thing that Camus is advocating here, love that is friendship, you know, whether it's between Ryu and his mother or actually Taru and Ryu's mother. Like he, as he's dying, he you know, seems to consider his mother a saint just because, it, you know, reminds him of his own mother and how unassertive she was. Like it's not a very complimentary description of his own mother, but just, you know, that there's somebody that can be steadfast in their gentleness. And then we have this whole scene before he dies of Ria and Teru going swimming together. They can we take time out for friendship? You know, they've been working so hard. Taru says that and they go swimming together because swimming is okay for saints. And just that they're swimming in sync with each other, yet they can never really express that. It's something that you can't fit into language. That's the thing that really hit me coming out of this is that scene particular, and you know how it's something that the plague by making us abstract rips off our capacity for real friendship. That you know you need the friendship requires both that you recognize the solidarity. You know, in other words, the abstraction that we are all in the same boat, but that you engaging with each other enough as individuals that you can, you know, see each other. And through writing this, Ryu really is trying to see and channel Taru and everybody else. And that was like Taru's whole thing is he's making this journal because he's really trying to, I don't know how well he's getting in the head of the cat man know, or anybody else that he's writing about. But, you know, it's as close as human beings can to, <laughs> given that we're so opaque to each other, to connection is is that we each make a good, honest attempt at it. At seeing each other in our our fullness and that we then develop some kind of
0: inexpressible simpatico. Do you want to say anything about how this resonates with what we're going through with coronavirus? Well, I will say that what struck
3: me was just how initially the narrative could very well have been contemporary. People preoccupied with commerce, the obvious is happening, but they're like, meh, (laughs) shrugging it off the magistrates and government officials who are afraid to take action, the health officials urging more serious, the supply constraints for the vaccine, the belated measures, the disbelief and hostility and anger of the crowds. And I got to the point where I wondered whether there would be a kind of resignation and that step to communal awareness. And it seems at least... I can tell you in the state of Texas, the answer is going to be no. They're not armed protesters with swastika flags entering the Capitol building, but they're going to cave to commerce. And, uh, and, you know, that's the lesson, right? I started off my introduction saying that I haven't learned anything and not learning anything from history. And that's one of the things that comes through in the book is that the only thing we learn from history is that we never learn from history. The plague for Camus is not a unique event, it's a recurring event. War and plague, pestilence, these sorts of things, they come and they visit themselves upon humankind frequently and repeatedly over generations. And we have an opportunity when confronted with these things to understand and to become fully human in the existentialist sense. And for a short period of time, we do, and then we forget and we move on. And the fact that this novel is set just several years it's unclear exactly what year it's supposed to be but it's 1940 something so either the you know, the second world war is happening or it's shortly shortly thereafter and the people already are acting as if that had never happened and i think the plague is a call to awareness a call to understanding a call to compassion and and all of, many of the things that we have talked about over the last 11 years and when we've been doing podcasts on ethics or social theory or political theory or what have you, this need to have an awareness that everybody suffers. Everybody is experiencing life. Everybody has their own story, their own narrative, but everybody experiences life and everybody will die. And the idea that we somehow are as egos, as individuals block out that recognition and realization so that we can create these edifices that involve social strata and honor and all these other sorts of things, Camus making a very stark call to recognize that, to be prepared for the next time you're confronted with the immediate possibility of your ceasing to
0: exist, to use it in a more Heideggerian way. Yeah, that's very well put. We can read the novel, of course, in a number of different ways, including seeing the plague as a metaphor for war or war nazi occupation or whatever but there's this broader sense of the plague that's always with humanity that Taru tries to point us to which involves you know murder as he puts it and violence and war and all the ways in which we wrong each other seth you've tied it into the sort of question of the plague is denial of mortality i think that's the way to the plague that's always with us is the denial of mortality and then you reminded me of Epicurus and talking about the things that result from that denial of mortality, including a preoccupation with status and hierarchy and power and all the sorts of things that flow out of that. So you could treat that this novel as a being about those sorts of things. And ironically, it's that pre-existing plague which makes the town of Iran so susceptible to the actual plague when when it arrives, right? Because they're oblivious. And that's one of the things that most resonated with me about the current moment is the kind of disbelief that people have that this could actually be happening in the beginning, which makes them slow to respond. And we watched that unfold with this whole coronavirus thing. And I personally felt it. You know, I even just that feeling of disbelief looking at what was going on in China people being welded into their homes and thinking well if that's happening there and it i mean obviously it's going to spread here and if it's that bad then we're going to be seeing really bad stuff happen here but then the thought but can that really happen that's just crazy that can happen and no one else is acting like it's going to happen so just sort of trudging along, thinking, not accepting the fact that there are going to be lockdowns, so just some certain things were obviously going to have to happen. That, to me, was the most resonant thing, the way that Camus captures that level of disbelief that this sort of thing can be happening, and it's something that reflects, Seth, as you pointed out, our denial of mortality, which plays such a fundamental role psychologically and, and socially and politically.
1: I know there's been a lot of people trying to connect this book to what's happening right now, but just the fact that, you know, our situation is global and I think this, this being a local event is very key to defining how people react, the, the solidarity that they do develop? You know, am I going to flee the city? Am I going to try to break out of the city? The people who are, I mean, there's other kinds of violence of people looting and things like that, but most of it is people trying to break out. Like that's the way that they're defying the orders. They're not militantly saying, I'm not going to get rid of the fleas from my house. There's nothing like the exact correspondences to the protesters now, but just the fact that, you know, it's local and that it's much worse in this story, that, like you were saying, Wes, I see the most parallels to the early parts of this book, but it's just it matters so much. Then whether the early part is a harbinger of things that are going to be much worse or not—that's the magistrate and others failing in the book—is that they weren't paying enough attention. And you can say that there's something comparable to the way you know we were reacting in January and things about that. But there's wide divergences despite the parallels right now between. What the squads do here and the squads do there, for instance, you can go volunteer right now. And this is something we didn't discuss in our pandemic episode, but do we have a a moral duty to join one of these groups that are, you know, doing wellness checks on people and getting out into the community to, you know, at the time when we are being told to be locked up, but to deal with those disparities that we were talking about last time, if people are unable to get food at all, like maybe that's what you should be doing is volunteering to cart stuff for an older person. That that kind of, you can draw parallels to ethical requirements that are in here to ethical requirements but we have, but it's just such a different scale. If somebody who's like actually working in a hospital in New York where they're piling up bodies in a trailer because they don't have room for them, maybe they would see more parallels more exactly to what we're seeing here than, we're certainly not feeling it the way that these citizens are feeling it in this book. I would say, overall.
0: It's more spread out. I mean, if you were to compare actual death tolls and, you know, it's a global thing that's actually, its impact is larger, but, Mark, as you're pointing out, everything is concentrated in this book, and so this particular community, everyone feels the brunt of it, whereas, really, in the United States, or it depends on where you are in the world, or even within your particular country or city, how hard you're getting hit by this, you know, I mean, I think a lot of us will know someone who's lost someone, or we'll know, you know, have a, a friend of a friend who's lost someone. It'll be that. It's because the, the amount of people who are dying. But yeah, the whole, the scene, the dramatic scenes of, you know, even though mass burial, you know, there's, there's been scenes of mass burial and things like that. But the kind of stuff that goes on in the book, that sort of dramatic spectacle, yeah, for the most part, that's not part of what we're, we're experiencing. And it's not the same immediate call to action exactly unless you're a doctor in New York or in a place that's hard hit. Dylan, any last thoughts? I don't have anything
1: new to add. All right, next time we are doing an episode on fashion. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's that's really relevant. To go from grave concerns to the trivial. <laughs> <laughs> Not trivial. I guess we'll see. So our guest is
1: Shahida Bari. So we had talked after our Simone de Beauvoir episodes. She had had a chapter on fashion that we didn't really have time to talk about, and it seemed really interesting. And then Shahid Abari, uh had written this book called Dressed, so we're going to read a little bit of that. And then she helped us pick out an essay by Susan Sontag, some Foucault, some Derrida. So this is going to, you know, be some pretty heavy reading, intense reading for a potentially a light subject. But I guess we'll see. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Something that is different than what we just have done for the last couple times. Also, to potentially lighten things up, our closing song, relevantly to the discussion we just had, is You Will Kill the One You Love by Jack Hughes, whom you probably know from his days with Wang Chung. But most of his music doesn't sound anything like that. I interviewed him for Nakedly Examined Music, episode 122. Check that out at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Good night, everybody. Good night.
2: Good night. Good
0: night.